Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret the dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear, but know the, hear or know 
but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar was given the command, and Daniel was clothed with, sorry, Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw the story of how Nebuchadnezzar was proud and God humbled him, gave him the dream, and then the dream came true, and he lived like an animal for seven years. And at the end of that time, as you remember, most of chapter four was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself to the people of Babylon saying, hey, there is a God and he's king of heaven and he's able to humble you if you walk in pride. Between chapter four and chapter five, there's been 23 years that go on. Between, if you remember, at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was restored to power and restored to his kingdom. But when you get to chapter 5, we see this guy Belshazzar, who is the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans. Now, if you read it just like we just read it, it would appear in the English that Belshazzar is a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Because doesn't it say, your father, your father, your father, and you his son? But if you have a study Bible, you'll notice that there might be a little note down at the bottom that says, another word that's trans, that they translated in the English father could have also been translated predecessor. And actually where it says son, it could just mean a successor. And actually, as I'm going to get to near the end of our study tonight, you're going to see that Belshazzar is not an actual of the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, but actually he's a successor. And we're going to get into a lot of history tonight that actually is all... You can check on it and you can find it and it's all verifiable. We're going to take a look at what all's gone on in the time period between Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom coming to an end and Belshazzar being in power. And a lot had happened. Again, how many years has it been between chapter 4 and chapter 5? 23 years have gone on. That's going to be important for us. But before we break down um, this chapter, we've got to pull out a couple more things from chapter 4. And look at the recorded history that occurred between these two chapters to better grasp the work of God here and in our lives. Now, we see from our study that we've seen already is God gave Nebuchadnezzar many opportunities to humble himself. Did he not? Yeah, and, to, and, and, to, and God's judgments on Nebuchadnezzar produced repentance. But in this story that we see here in chapter 5, Belshazzar was killed that very night. Now, we've just seen God give Nebuchadnezzar opportunities to repent. Yet Belshazzar was killed that night. Here's the question. Why no apparent mercy? Nebuchadnezzar was given mercy and opportunities to repent and acknowledge that there is a God and he's king of heaven. But it appears that Belshazzar has been not given that same opportunity. But you would be wrong if you thought that. This is where the history between chapter 4 and chapter 5 will be helpful. We'll get to that later tonight. But before we get into the history of what went on between chapter 4 and chapter 5, I want us to be reintroduced to this God who keeps reintroducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. I think it would be valuable for all of us to continually be reintroduced to God. Yes, you know him through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful. 
but do you really know him yet? Hopefully, if you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he gets bigger and bigger and more and more impressive the more you spend time with him. The Bible says that we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think that the more time you spend in the Word of God and the more time you spend in prayer, the more time you spend getting to know God, the smaller and the more manageable He'll become, you don't get it. He's going to become more and more and more impressive. And so it's valuable for us to be reintroduced over and over to who God really is. So go with me to Exodus chapter 34. We could do well to just talk about how God kept reintroducing Himself to Nebuchadnezzar, but... Like I said, let's let him reintroduce himself to us. In Exodus chapter 34, God is going to appear before Moses. And if you know the story, he's not going to allow his full face and glory to be seen. Otherwise, Moses would have died. But he lets God, God lets him see a portion of himself. And listen to what it says in chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his, in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Look at how God describes himself. He's a God who is patient slow to anger. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love. But when he knows there'll be no repentance, he will not clear the guilty. The consequences of some people's sin will actually even in some way affect three or four generations after that. Now let's clarify this because some of you might think, wait a minute, they're going to cause the sin of the fathers to be carried on to the third and fourth generation. Does that mean that you'll be punished for sins that your father did or your grandfather did? No. The scripture says clearly that that's not the case. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me show you what I mean. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at verse 16. Deuteronomy 24. Look at verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's in the law of God. You're not to be punished for someone else's sin. You're to be punished for your own sin. Go over to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 24. Ezekiel 18, verse 19. 
Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. And here God says, look, I'm not going to have you put to death for someone else's sin. For the soul that sins, it shall die. So, okay, let's, let's be reintroduced to this God. God is a God of mercy. He's patient. He's slow to anger. <laughs> He's full of steadfast love. It hangs on and hangs on. Yet he will by no means clear the guilty. And then as he said, we saw in Exodus 34, having the sins of the fathers kind of carry down to the third and fourth generation, what does that mean? We've already clearly said that you're not going to be put to death because of your father's sins or your grandfather's sins. What it means is this, even though your descendants will not be punished for your sins, I hope you realize that if you walk in disobedience to God, the consequences of your sin will have an effect on your children. And your grandchildren. Let me just give you an example. Adam and Eve, did they fully obey God in the garden? Okay, they disobeyed. What was the consequence? They were removed from the garden. They weren't able to walk in the presence of God like they had. By the way, did any of their children ever get to experience the garden? No. The consequences of Adam and Eve's sin was carried on and affected the children. You do, if you know anything about the story of Saul, Saul becomes the king of Israel. But because of Saul's disobedience and the fact that he doesn't wait when Samuel says, you wait until I show up and we'll offer the sacrifice. But because Saul starts to see people getting panicky and they all start to run away and they're starting to get fearful, he doesn't obey, he doesn't wait, and he takes and he offers the sacrifice himself. And Samuel comes and speaks for the Lord and says, because you've done this, God has removed the kingship from your family line I've chosen somebody else, a man after my own God's own heart. And as you know, it's David and his lineage that the kingship came through. But it was going to be in God's original plan, as you see, or what he had offered to Saul, I guess is a better way to put it, that it would come through his kingship. By the way, does anybody know who Saul's son is? Jonathan. By the way, is he an impressive young man or not? He's an amazingly impressive young man. He had a faith in God that I wish his father had. He was a friend of David. It was obvious that he knew the Lord and trusted him and walked with him. But did Jonathan ever get to be king? Because of the consequences of the father's sin. Let me say something to you, folks. You may not realize it, but when you walk in disobedience to God and you miss out on the blessings that God has for those who trust him, it does affect the people around you for generations to follow. No one's going to hell because of your parents' sin, just like no one's going to heaven because your parents or your grandparents are believers. So let's be reintroduced tonight a little bit to who this God is. He's a God who's patient. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. 
So it appears that Belshazzar has had no opportunity to repent. He does this thing wrong, and God says, you're going to be killed tonight. And he was. Is that who God is? No, that's not who God is. But in God's patience, he many times warns us. And his warnings are to bring about repentance. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Many of you can quote it. But I want you to see it for yourself. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness. It's about his return. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's word clearly says that God's desire is that all come to repentance. And he's patient. He's giving you opportunities to repent. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Look at verses 18 through 21. By the way, I hope those of you that have been following for years and the, the teaching of Just a Preacher Ministries, and maybe some of you that are new or are now watching online and it's one of the first times. One of the reasons why I use so many scriptures is I want you to see that what's being taught here has been said all along throughout the whole Bible. There's not an Old Testament and a New Testament God. He's the same God. It's been the same way all along. Look at Isaiah 30, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Here, God again says he longs to be gracious to you. He's patient. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. But in Genesis chapter 15, well, Abraham is saying to God, well, where's this child you promised me? It looks like my servant Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. God comes to him and says, no, it's not going to be uh, uh, your heir. It's not going to be sorry, Eliezer of Damascus. Your servant's not going to be your heir, but a child from your own body. And then God has him go into a, a little bit of a sleep, if you will. And God walks between the pieces and he makes this promise. And he says, know for certain that your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years, but they're going to come out with great wealth. Listen closely to what he says next. For the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. For years, people have said, I don't like the fact that when God sent the nation of Israel into the promised land, he had them kill everybody. He gave them over 400 years. The reason why the nation of Israel didn't go into the land until that time was because God says, I'm giving them more opportunity to repent. Go to Psalm chapter 50. Some of you think, well, God hadn't said anything. He must be okay with it. Well, don't assume that. Go to Psalm 50. Look at verses 16 through 23. Psalm chapter 50, verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent and you thought I was one like yourself, 
But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God said, look, I know exactly what you've done. I know your life. I know the things that you do in secret. I've watched you and I could describe every single one of your sins. I've been quiet. I've been patient. I've used lots of different ways to get your attention. But because I've been silent verbally, you thought I was okay with it. I'm not. And judgment's coming if you don't get right. God's warnings are used to bring us to repentance and to have us seek Him for forgiveness. Did you hear what we just read there in the last verse? The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. In order to order our ways rightly, what is God wanting from us? And by the way, if you don't answer this right, we're going to start all last week's lesson over again. God gives grace to the humble. God says in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, He's shown you, O oh man, what does God require and what does he ask of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you humble yourself, if you acknowledge, God, you're God and I'm not. God, you're in charge and I'm not. You're holy and I'm not. But I want to be right in your eyes. I'm not going to try to do stuff to make you like me. I believe you love me and that's why you sent your son. Would you show me your salvation? God gives grace to the humble. Go to Acts chapter 17. Go to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. In Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22, Paul standing there in, in Athens, speaking to the Areopagus, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's actually not far from each one of us. Now, before I go any further, don't miss that. The God who made the world and everything in it doesn't need us. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. We've been given wonderful church buildings here in America, but that's not the house of God. God lives within us who trust Him. We're the walking temples, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Don't think that that's a sacred building and that's the house of God. We've got to go there to go to the house of God. No, he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. But don't miss this. He's also determined when you'd be born in history and where. Why? So that you'd find him. So that you'd find him. And then he goes on and he says in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets, Paul said, have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did you catch that? 
God says for a while, he didn't deal with all the sin. And he has his reasons, and I'm going to get to some of them in just a second from Scripture. But he's made very clear now to everyone what everyone must do, and that is repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the one he's going to use to judge the world. Go to Romans chapter 3. Paul actually deals in Romans chapter 3 with God's reasoning for being silent about some of this stuff for years. In Romans chapter 3. By the way, if he's silent, does that mean he's okay with it? Exactly. Psalm 50 says, don't assume that. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was also to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, God had his reasons for why he was silent for a few years about this or the other. But all along, it's been there. He's given us witness. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that the wrath of God's been revealed against those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For what can be known about God has been clearly seen throughout all creation by what's been made. His divine nature, His eternal qualities have been seen through creation. Chapter 2, he goes on and he says, even if you never heard the law of God, He wrote His law on your heart. And even the Gentiles who don't have the law have the law written on their heart. God has revealed Himself. God has given himself a witness. Paul even says that in Acts chapter 13 or 14, I think it is, where he says, talking to this one group of people, he's never left himself without a witness. He's revealed himself to you in many different ways. But he's never come out and directly stated it as clearly as he has now in the time that we're in, that there is a judgment coming and it's going to be done by himself, Jesus being God, and he's risen from the dead to show that this is the one who is the sacrifice for our sin. And he's been patient with you and he loves you, but don't assume that I'll be okay because he will know by no means clear the guilty. He'll by no means clear the guilty. So was God patient with Nebuchadnezzar, but not patient with Belshazzar? With what we know about God, what is your guess as your answer to that question? He can't go against his nature. He wasn't just patient with Nebuchadnezzar and impatient with Belshazzar. He was patient with Belshazzar. Again, when I get into some of the history tonight, it'll surprise you at how much Belshazzar had been given witness Before, though, we get into that, we got to get something straight. Now, this is going to make some of your people not happy. But that's because you want to be God and you want to determine how God does things. Listen closely to what I'm about to say to you. And I want you to hear it from Scripture, not just from Jim's words. God gets to do things in his world however he wants. We're going to get into some deep theology tonight from the Scriptures. He's patient, he's merciful, he's loving, he's kind. 
but he also gets to choose how much light he gives to each of us. And if you've got a problem with that and you think it should be equally fair that everybody gets the same amount of revelation and everybody gets the same amount of wisdom from God, you want to be God and you want to determine how things go. And the Bible says God gets to do it however he chooses. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. In other words, I don't like how you made it. Some of you have probably jokingly said to your kids over the years, I brought you to this world, I can, bring you, I can take you out. Remember that you've heard that statement? But guess who really can say it? God. Go to Romans chapter 9. Go to Romans chapter 9, look at verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, let me just say something to you. Look closely. Paul said, what if God chose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell? Listen closely. He doesn't say that he has. The Bible is very, very clear that, again, we've already read. Does he have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. But he wants what? All to come to repentance. He's patient. Why? Because he wants all to come to repentance. And if you can't come to repentance unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes, it's then understandable. In the scripture, I'll show you the scriptures that talk about that. Everybody hears Everybody has an opportunity. Have we not already said he's already revealed himself through creation so they're all without excuse? Have we not already also said that he's written his law in their hearts? Have we not already said that he's given them witness in every generation? Definitely, yes. But we have to be faithful to the scripture and also acknowledge that God chooses how much revelation and how much light everybody gets and not everybody gets the same amount. How many of you, show of hands, when you got saved, you were blinded by Jesus and were knocked off your horse, like Paul, where you couldn't even walk around. No, but Paul got that kind of a revelation from Jesus, where he was knocked off his horse, blinded, and he heard the voice speaking straight to him. Not everybody gets that, folks. And so we got to let the scripture be true. What if God wants to do it that way? Whenever I travel around the country and I speak in different churches or at conference centers, inevitably my wife and kids will tell you it happens. Someone will come and say, you're going to be here for a few days. Do you mind if we do question and answer night? And I said, I love it. I love question and answer night because it allows God to use the way he's wired me with the scriptures to come to mind. But I also tell people two things. One, if you're, you've got to be okay with I don't know because that might be one of my best answers. Because if I don't know, i got no problem with saying I don't know because I want you to believe me when I say I know. Here's the second thing. Inevitably, there's going to be the question of Calvinism versus Arminianism. 
predestination versus free will. And that is the inevitable question that comes up because Christians have been fighting about it over the years. And I always say to the churches, I have no problem answering from Scripture that question. But you've got to do a couple of things. One, you've got to give me an hour. Because if I'm going to handle it scripturally and fairly, I need to use the whole of Scripture and we're going to take an hour to deal with it. And secondly, before I even give you one verse about this and answer the question, everybody in the room has to uncross their arms. Because whenever you answer that question, everybody in the room has already made up their mind what side of the aisle they're on. And they only ask the question because they want to know, are you on my side or on their side? And so I tell people, listen, for those of you who have said in your heart, I would never believe in a God that's chosen some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. You've got to uncross your arms before we get started, because the scripture says, what if he did? He has every right to do that. Does he not have the right, just like a potter would take the same lump of clay and make a beautiful vase and a chamber pot? Doesn't he have the right to do that? How come God doesn't have the right to do that? Well, I would never believe in a God that's predetermined people for hell and people for heaven. The scripture says he has every right to do that way if he wants to. And you need to be willing to acknowledge that. Secondly, though, the Bible doesn't say that he has. Some of you have written a definition of sovereignty that God has to meet. And I tell those people that are on the sovereignty side, you guys need to uncross your arms. Because you've made a definition of sovereignty that says if man has any part, God is not, in, not sovereign. I actually believe the scripture says God is so sovereign, he's in full control and gives man a choice. That's a power and level of sovereignty you hadn't even thought about. But again, can the clay say to the potter, it doesn't have any handles. I don't like how this has been done. Be careful. When we talk about God's salvation and his mercy and his patience and his judgment, he gets to do it however he wants. If God chose to give Nebuchadnezzar opportunities to repent and chose to not give Belshazzar an opportunity, that's his right. But that's not his nature according to who he's revealed himself to be, as you just said, Susan. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. Jesus is speaking and says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's God, by the way, not Satan. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Wait a minute, doesn't God sound? Did I say Luke chapter 12? That's what I, 47 and... I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. I wrote down in my notes 47 and 48. It's, it's 4 through 7. My bad. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are listening. You thought you were getting a new revelation. Well, that not, hopefully didn't come from me. Go to, go to Luke 12, verses 4 through 7. Thank you. I tell you, my friends, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. Hang on for a second. 
God goes from saying, you better be afraid of me because I have the authority to throw you into hell. Yet, don't be afraid. I love you. This is that balance, that conundrum, if you will, almost. But go to now verses 47 and 48. They do work as well. And the servant who knew his master's will. Chapter 12, verse 47. The servant that knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will. He'll receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Look closely. Where it says, whom has been entrusted much is demanded the, the much, is in proportion to how much God's revealed to you. If you knew what you were to do and didn't do it, the judgment's severe. If you didn't know, but you still did something worthy of judgment, this judgment will be less. It's in accordance with how much he's revealed. Go to Matthew chapter 11. And I'm pretty sure I got the right verses now. I'm going to question everyone the rest of the night. Matthew 11. Go to Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, there'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Listen closely to what God said. He said, the, Jesus himself walked in Capernaum, lived among them, did the miracles, the healings, all this stuff. They receive so much light. It's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. And he's, listen to also what he said. If the miracles that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd still be here because they would have repented. And everything in us says, then God, why didn't you give him that chance? He gets to do things how he wants. He gets to do things how he wants. They had light. They had enough revelation. They'll be held accountable, but they're going to be judged in accordance with how much was revealed to them for them to make a true decision. And since it's less than what was revealed in Capernaum, the judgment will be less. Those who knew what they were to do and didn't do it, the judgment will be more severe. I don't want to get into it because it's more than we have time to get into and it's deeper than the scriptures say, but there are levels of punishment for eternity in hell. Hell is eternal for everybody that goes there. But there's going to be levels of punishment in hell, just like there's going to be levels of reward in heaven. And folks, let me just say this to you. I'm just going to ask you a question. Is there a nation that's received more light than the United States of America? Then according to what we've seen in Scripture, what are we headed for? A severe judgment in proportion. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all, do you see that? 
They will all be taught by God. Now, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Don't miss that. No one can come to the Father unless the one who sent Jesus, the Holy Spirit, draws them. We've already seen in Romans chapter 3 that there's no one righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says no one even seeks God. No one understands. Yet the scripture says that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. Does God draw everyone? The next verse says that. It says in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Whoever listens comes. Those of you, by the way, who have had children, especially teenagers, there's a big difference between hearing and listening, correct? Doesn't even have to be teenagers. could be you. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. The Bible says everyone hears. Does everyone hear the same amount? No. And God's going to judge everyone according to how much he's revealed. But for those who have had much light, much will be required. So did Belshazzar have opportunity to repent before God's judgment on him according to the scriptures? The right answer is yes. And we already read it in the very beginning of our study tonight. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 23. Daniel chapter 5 verses 18 through 23. You might have missed it when we read it earlier. Listen to what it says here in verse 18 through 23. O king... God speaking through Daniel to Belshazzar. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father or your predecessor kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was like was with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Listen closely. And you, his son, or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this. Did Belshazzar know? Yes, he did. God's never without a witness. He'll never judge somebody without giving them an opportunity to repent first. Now, let's deal with some history in the 15 minutes we have left. Some history between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Some of you are going to have to scribble notes fast. I apologize. I'm going to have to hit this pretty quick but it'll give you more insight into what all had gone on and what was going on that night that Belshazzar died. First off, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. He can, after chapter 4, he continued in his kingdom for a while, but he died in 562 B.C. and he was succeeded to the throne by his actual son by the name of Amel Marduk known also in the Bible as evil Merodach. If you were to write this down, look at it later on. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27, 2 Kings 25, 27, and Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34. They both talk about the exact same thing, how Jehoiakim was treated kindly by Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amel Marduk, and they called him in the scriptures evil Merodach. Uh, he was treated kindly by him, and he sat at his table, and he took care of him. But although Amel Marduk treated Jehoiakim well, 
he didn't rule well. And his reign over Babylon was short. He only ruled after his father for two years, from 562 to 560. If you know BC, years count down to zero. Amel Marduk was succeeded by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, who assassinated him to take over the kingdom. So again, like I said, Amel uh, Marduk was only king for two years after Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of his reign, it was because his brother-in-law had him assassinated and assassinated him and took over the kingship. Nereglisser, N-E-R-I-G-L-I-S-S-A-R. Nereglisser's reign was brief but acceptable, and he died of natural causes after reigning from 560 to 556 B.C. So he reigned for four, four years after that, a fairly decent reign, acceptable reign, but he died of natural causes. Now, Nereglisser's son, Labashi Marduk, lasted only a few months in the office when he was executed by a rival faction led by a Babylonian noble named Nabonidus. All right, so again, just a few months after uh, Nereglisser's died, his son reigned, but only for a few months, and he was put to death by a noble from Babylon named Nabonidus. Nabonidus reigned from 556 B.C. until the end of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. But you say, wait a minute, where's Belshazzar? Well, hang on. Nabonidus wasn't around Babylon very much, though. He had some problems when he was king over Babylon. Again, his reign was from 556 B.C. till the end of the Babylonian Empire in 539. But his reign was a very interesting one because he brought in worship of the moon god Sin, and he took them away from some of the gods they were worshiping, and he had them worship the moon god. And a lot of the priests of Marduk didn't like that, and so it was a kind of an uneasy reign and he changed their religious practices, and a lot of people didn't like that. And also, he had built a nice house for himself out away outside of Babylon that he and his wife used to like to go to. So since he was away from Babylon much of the time, he made his son, Belshazzar, co-regent with him. This is the Belshazzar of Daniel chapter 5. So Nabonidus is the ruler, but he made his son, Belshazzar, co-regent. By the way, does anybody understand how this is all of a sudden starting to make some sense? Go back to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verses 16 and then again at verse 9, uh, 29. Daniel chapter 5 verse 16. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. And you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. And he sh and, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. How come he was offered the third ruler in the kingdom? Because there were two at that time, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. By the way, for years, people that didn't like Daniel because it's too specific, and there's no way God could have written it, because how could anybody know the things that are said? And when do you get into some of the prophecy we're going to get into in the later chapters of Daniel? The specific prophecies of what was to come were so literally fulfilled. People that studied Daniel that didn't want to accept that God wrote it said there's no way that was written at that time because there's no way anybody could know those things. And one of the things they would use to disprove Daniel was they would say, you study the history. There was no king over Babylon and the Chaldeans named Belshazzar. Well, guess what? Over the last 10, 20 years, there have been archaeological digs and they have found a lot 
of writings that show there was a king named Belshazzar there in Babylon. We know about Nabonidus. We've learned that the Bible has been true all along. And that's why Daniel is offered to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus, and he was co-regent because Nabonidus spent most of his time away from Babylon. Now, ever after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the Babylonian Empire began to crumble, losing some of its territory because the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was increasing. In 558, though, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the king of the Medes, and that guy, the king of the Medes at that time was named Astyages, A-S-T-Y-A-G-E-S, and he, in 558, per Cyrus combined their kingdom. The kingdom of the Medes became the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. During Cyrus's conquest, he defeated Nabonidus and exiled him. But the great city of Babylon stayed intact with Belshazzar still in power. So keep this in mind. The kingdom of Babylon, which has been great and covered a lot of that area of the world, has begun to shrink because of warring factions coming and taking some after Nebuchadnezzar, because he's the one who had been given that authority by God. But after he died, a lot of that promise that he gave Nebuchadnezzar wasn't to his descendants, and the kingdom of Babylon is now shrinking in size. Cyrus is the king of Persia starting to gain power. There's the Persian, sorry, the Medes as well. But then Cyrus defeats the king of the, of the Medes and he makes a joint empire called the Medes and the Persians. And he defeats Nabonidus and exiles him. But the city of Babylon itself was still intact. Again, if you ever do any research, you'll find two of the seven wonders of the world are there in Babylon. One of them is the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar made for his wife and all this stuff. There's amazing stuff. And it was an amazing city with two walls, an inner wall and an outer wall. But before his exile, Nabonidus had offended the priests of Marduk by bringing in the practice of worshiping the moon god Sin and making many enemies for himself from within the kingdom. With his being gone much of the time and with the size of the kingdom shrinking, the people of Babylon were looking for any type of unifying leader, even if it would be the king, Cyrus. So this is the kingdom that Belshazzar is trying to keep control of while it's crumbling all around him. And his dad's exiled and defeated and spending time away. He's got all the priests mad at him. The people of the kingdom are like, and we just need a ruler again like Nebuchadnezzar that's in charge of us. And all this stuff's going on. So Belshazzar, in the midst of this, decides to throw a party. And he decides to go back to their previous worship of the idols like Bel and Marduk that they used to worship. Gods of wood and stone, not the moon. Go back to Daniel 5 again. Look at 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had father, remember that's his predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Does anybody notice they didn't praise the, the, the moon god? He's trying to bring it back. He's trying to get everybody happy again. I'm not going to be like my dad and change the religion. We're going to go back to worshiping the gods of wood and stone. And on top of that, even though he knew better, we saw earlier, he knew better. He decides to dishonor the God of the Jews by drinking to the false gods out of the vessels from the Jewish temple. 
Little does he know that at that moment, the Persians have dammed up the Euphrates River, which flowed under the outer wall of the city, so that the Persian army can enter the outer part of the city. And the Persian sympathizers from within the city will open the inner gates, and Belshazzar will be killed that night. So all this time, while this party's going on, and by the way, it is what the scripture points to, it was an orgy. And the, the king was getting drunk in front of everybody. They were bringing all the wives and the concubines in, and it was a very, very hedonistic party. And they're praising the gods of wood and stone, and Belshazzar, what's going on around him? The kingdom's crumbling. His dad's been defeated and exiled. It's obvious that the Medes and the Persians are gaining in power. And he decides, let's have a party. Let's have a, a fun time. Even though he knew better, had all this history. And he, even little does he know, while this party's going on, the Medes and the Persians have dammed up the Euphrates River that had flowed under the outer wall. And now they can get into the city by coming in through the dry riverbed. And then to get into the inner side, remember how there were people from within the city who were sympathizers. We just want a king that's going to get us back in power again, and we don't care if it's Cyrus from another nation. They opened the city gates, and he was killed that night. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, we'll deal next week with who Darius the Mede is, you done any study on that? There's a lot of debate as to who Darius the Mede is. We're going to deal with that next week. Tonight, as we wrap up, I want us not to forget the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Daniel 4. Look at verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What do we also know about who God is? He gets to choose whom he gives the kingdoms to. And he gives them to whomever he will. Folks, listen closely to me. I don't know why God's impressing this upon me. but We better pray for our nation. Oh, I don't want you to get together a movement of people that are going to change the laws and all this kind of stuff thinking that we can get a change. No, I want you just to pray for our nation. Because God may say, it's too late. And if he has said that about our country, he has every right to. Because he gets to do things as he wishes. But he also tells us to seek him and to ask him. Don't pray and try to take things into your own hands. Just pray. Pray. But if there was a nation that sure looks a lot like Babylon, it would be us. Oh, by the way, I don't believe where the United States is the Babylon of Revelation. I believe it's Babylon, and that's another study for another time. But is this not a sobering lesson for us as well? He's patient. He's merciful. He's steadfast in love. And we're not going to be judged for other people's sins in the sense of going to hell because somebody else sinned. But it, by no means will he clear the guilty. And there will be consequences for future generations for other people's sins. Folks, it's time we Christians focus less on getting America right 
and just humbling ourselves before God and saying, what are you going to do? And we humble ourselves before you. We ask you to spare us. We ask for your mercy. We ask that you pour out a response like you did in Nineveh. But if you choose not to, everything you do is right and just. And I want to be humble and responsive to whatever it is you want to do. A lot more about this next week. We'll see you then.